Welcome to Breaking the Bias, a podcast where we interview people breaking the bias when it comes to diversity, inclusion, and equity. Because asking better questions, having the courage to truly listen to the answers, and sharing our stories is how real belonging happens. Hi, I'm Holly Corbett. I'm the director of content for Consciously Unbiased, and we are so thrilled to have Tom Boss here today. He's the author of Where the War Ends, A Combat Veteran's 2,700-Mile Journey to Heal. Hi, Tom. Hi, thanks for having me. This book was um, written with my myself and my sister, uh, who's a co-author, Rebecca Ann Wynn. Um, we wrote this book based off the journey um, of myself and another Iraq War veteran, Anthony Anderson, um, trekking from Wisconsin to California to kind of heal from our time in combat. Um, so it was a 2,700-mile journey, and uh, we ended up um, taking about five months uh, to to walk across the country. And it's about um, the people that we met and the, the, the lessons that we learned about our own healing experiences um, from traumatic events in Iraq. And can you tell us a little bit about your position in the Army? I was uh, 19 when I joined the Army and 20 when I deployed, turned 21 on my deployment. So you have a lot of, um, you know, young men and women fighting in these wars. So you have to think of, you know, the how this is impacting them and the rest of their lives ahead of them. Mm-hmm. And your grandfather was in the Navy, is that right? He was in the Marine Corps, yeah, part the of the Navy. Corps. So from a very young age, uh, my sister and I understood that service was really important. My father was a social worker and my mother was a teacher. Um, so we learned very young that we're here to help other people that need help and to support other people that are less fortunate than us. And um, that's the mentality I took into joining the military in the first place, joining the Army. What was the hardest part about coming back? The hardest part, I think, for me was the fact that um, not many people have this experience of fighting in war. It's less than 1% of the population uh, join in the military, and um, even less than that uh, see, see combat, actual combat. So you have a very small minority of people in the country that experience um, the actual fighting that happens. Um, and everyone has, um, in, in military and combat zones, they have, um, you know, dangers and stuff. But there's, you know, a per- percentage is specifically the infantry and the combat arms that are doing the actual fighting and kicking in doors and, and doing the hard, the hard, you know, job of detaining people and doing the firefights and everything like that. So coming back, um, you know, there's no one to connect with about it. Um, there's no one that I could go to and say, hey, I have this experience and um, no one has that in their purview. So that they, I, I'm, I'm 21 sitting on my mom's couch, you know, not able to connect with anyone about this experience. So you feel very, very isolated and very, very alone. And if you're not in an active duty military state, which Wisconsin is not, um, there's not a lot of military personnel around. Um, to be able to connect with. So that was one of the biggest challenges. And I think that's what a lot of veterans end up facing is they end up isolating themselves. And then once you do that, um, it's a pretty much downhill from there. And if you're suffering from post-traumatic stress or moral injury or traumatic brain injury, um, you just continuously isolate yourself and isolate yourself. And that's why we're seeing the uh, suicide epidemic of 20 veterans a day that are killing themselves. Wow. And and you say that PTSD and moral injury run parallel to each other. Can you explain what moral injury is? Sure, sure. Uh, moral injury, the definition of moral injury is 
witnessing or participating or failing to prevent acts that transgress your moral beliefs or your moral structure. So you have to look at the um, the way that we basically build our moral scaffolding or structure from society or your parents and um, the environment that we're, we were raised in. This is how we um, develop our moral bearings, I guess you could say. So when those are violated um, and war, like inherently, you're going to be violating those, you know, as a child growing up, I know that it's not okay to take another person's life. Society agrees that it's not okay to take a person's life. It's what we you know, have laws against and for to protect the sanctity of human life, right? Everyone deserves to be alive. That's alive. We agree upon that. So that's lifted when you go into combat. And now you're in a situation where like you can kill if you're, you know, we have rules around it, rules of engagement. But if someone's engaging you and firing at you or engaging with you, we can engage back. And that's our job is to kill, right? As an infantryman, like we seek and destroy, like that is our job. So you're in this situation now where you have, you know, your moral bearing that it's not okay to take someone's life. And now you're in a life and death situation in, in combat where it's kill or be killed. And then you come back to society and now that's put place back on top of you, right? So now you're going back to, no, it's not okay to kill anyone. And now you're like, well, but I violated that. You know, I had to do things and see things and witness other people doing things that, maybe violated my moral bearings or my moral compass. And that is what moral injury is. So when you have a violation like that, it, it, um, some of the symptoms are grief, shame, guilt, and these things aren't easily medicated away. And I think the problem is, is that people coming back from these combat, um, deployments or situations are being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress when they're suffering from the moral conflicts of war and um, they start medicating the symptoms of moral injury. So if someone's depressed, um, you know, they give them antidepressants. But the problem is they're medicating the symptoms, not the root cause. And I think that moral injury is the root cause of these symptoms that a lot of the men and women are feeling. So when I say that they run parallel, um, we have to look at post-traumatic stress, and that is a physical conditioning of uh, the body. So it's a physiological reaction to being in a dangerous situation. Um, you can get post-traumatic stress from being in a car crash or seeing something traumatic, um, even just witnessing you know, something that's outside of the, the something that you could probably handle um, can cause uh, your body to physically react um, and then hold on to that. So for me, being in a combat zone, my body is starting to adapt to being in a dangerous situation, knowing that um, essentially we're being hunted and knowing that we're always being watched and that there are people that want to kill us. So your body, you know, since uh, it's called like hyper arousal. So your body turns on a switch where it's like, we need to stay alive. Like we're not going to sleep. You know, we need to have our wits about us. So we know when there's a threat or when it's dangerous. So we need to keep our, it's your body's way of keeping yourself alive in these situations. So the problem is, is when you come home, you can't just turn it off like a light switch. And then that's when you've seen um, veterans with um, flashbacks or um, an example of my own experience was, you know, I was driving in Milwaukee and there was a trash bag on the side of the road and I would move three lanes over to get away from it. Because in Iraq, that was a clear sign of a potential 
uh, improvised explosive device while we were in a convoy. So that makes no sense for me to be doing that in Milwaukee because they're, they're not going to have IEDs in Milwaukee, right? But my body and my mind don't know that, right? And like intellectually, I know that like, yeah, it's probably not, but like the fear within me and my, my, my knowledge and understanding of things that have happened in the past tell me otherwise. So it's hard to control those types of things. So what happens, at least is, this is kind of my theory of, of what happened to me, was when I came back, my symptoms of post-traumatic stress were really pronounced because I'm just fresh out, out of this combat zone. And that takes a while to work through that. But at the same time, um, moral injury is still there. I'm still thinking about the things that I saw, the things that I witnessed, and trying to trying to make sense of that experience. And then eventually down the road, like two years later, I ended up going to the VA to get help. Um, the symptoms of post-traumatic stress, start you start to be able to manage them a little better. You start to like, okay, when I'm in a crowd, I get anxiety. When I'm driving down the road, I start avoiding. So you start to realize that you're how this is impacting your life. And then those start to kind of fade to the background. And then the moral questions start to rise. Were we justified in the things that we did collect, like as a whole, like as a country, you know, was I justified in my actions that I did? Right. So, um, and, and am I a good person? Can I be forgiven? Um, these questions about, um, really challenging, you know, who you are, and specifically in the case of moral injury, who you aren't. Um, and it's important to see that framework is because, like, you know, I wouldn't think of myself as someone who would kill people, and I had to be in that situation. So, like, now I'm, I'm conflicted, and I'm like, I know I'm not that person, but I was in a situation where I had to be that person. And now who, I, who am I as a person because of that? So those are the challenges that a lot of men and women are coming home with and the differences between post-traumatic stress and moral injury. So post-traumatic stress is your body coming down or having to adapt from being on high alert for a, a long amount of time or any right. amount of time. Right. Um, and moral injury is the cognitive dissonance you experience from having to go against your moral compass right. that is kind of right. at the heart of you. And so those two things are different and and but parallel. Parallel, yeah, similar. Yeah, so I think they're, they're, they're really connected. And I think that um, the more that we understand that, you know, we're sending human beings into battle um, that have consciences, they have, um, you know, they have their own moral belief structures, um, and they're, that they're going to be violated. And if we're, the big, the big question that's coming up now is, you know, we've been in Afghanistan for almost two decades. And we're, we're finding out that, you know, maybe the way, the way that we ended up going to war there was under, you know, we were being lied to essentially, right? Not really big news to people who, you know, are in the veteran community. Like we understand that, right? So now you have a bunch of people, including myself. And, and I've always asked myself in, in the context of the Iraq war, why did my friends die? Right? What was it for? You know, what's the purpose of that? That they're, they're now not with their families, you know, because of a decision of a handful of people. Mm. Yeah, and I think something else that really struck me in the book was when you said, um, you know, civilians often hail veterans as heroes. Right. But 
you don't feel like heroes most of the time. And, and it's because of this, what you're talking about, yeah. moral injury and all, all of these conflicting um, feelings and beliefs that you right. have going on. Um, something else that I, I thought was really interesting in Where the War Ends, you said, we don't just go to war to preserve the American way of life. We go to war so civilians don't have to. If we really serve and protect, we protect them from ever having to think about what went on, quote unquote, over there. Right. Um, that was that was really powerful for me to read. And I think there's this almost this unspoken vow of silence, mm -hmm. it sounds like. Yeah. Um, it, how does this impact vets who are coming back and they're not given the tools or the space to really process and heal? Yeah. Yeah, and it, there's a there's a dis, there's a big disconnect in the, in the you know civilian military um, divide as they as they say, but I'm I'm hoping that this book helps bridge that gap and build understanding because a lot of veterans um, we you can use this net analogy that we see ourselves as sheepdogs right there's three things in the world there's wolves sheep and sheepdogs right there are people that protect and then there's the sheep that get to go on and graze and do whatever they do and as long as they're undisturbed right we're doing our job. Right? And that's preserving the way of life that we have here. And even if it's, you know, people protesting against the military or protesting against the war, like we preserve that right for them to be able to protest, you know, and that's the whole thing of, of, of upholding the Constitution. So it's um, <clears throat> it's it's a challenging situation to be in. And then you come home and you see how little people know about the actual experience of war. And that I mean, that's a good thing, right? That's a good thing, but not. You know, when you're trying to trying to heal yourself and you're trying to figure out ways to connect with your communities and reconnect with your communities again. And um, the things that I've seen and participated in war, uh, I'm never going to be able to unsee them. And I think a lot of veterans are in the same boat. Um, so how do you integrate back into a society that has no idea what actually happens in war and um, try to, you know, be nice and wear a smile, you know, when you, we always use this. We use this in the book too. It's you know someone complaining about their Starbucks order. You know you you really you know after you've participated in in, in combat, you know what's in, in really important in life, and you're surrounded with it when you come back. Like I went to college, and I'm in a political science class, hearing an 18 year old spout off about the Iraq War, and just like trying not to lose my mind <laughs> in, mm. in those types of situations. And a lot of veterans are in those situations and, you know, hearing politicians talk um, about war and all that. And, you know, none of them had that experience yet. Th these are the people that are sending us and their sons and daughters, um, not their sons and daughters, but, you know, other people's sons and daughters into, into combat. Um, so there's a big disconnect there that happens. And then on top of that, like you alluded to before, you have people calling you a hero um, when you don't really feel that way inside. Mm. Mm. So it, it must feel like an alternative universe that you're walking through. You know, you have yeah. this experience, then you come back and you're living a different experience where people are kind of shielded <clears throat> from what yeah. you have experienced and you don't even feel like you can maybe share it. Right. And it's like the veil has been lifted, right? You know, um, what other humans are capable of doing to other humans. And I, I don't think people understand uh, the life and death situations a lot of people in the world are in uh, all over the world, right? There's genocides happening right now that we don't know about, that we don't see because it's not newsworthy, quote unquote, newsworthy or whatever. But I mean, 
there's some really dangerous stuff and there's some really dangerous people. And I think that, and groups too. And, and I think that we just kind of sh- shove that stuff aside because we're so insulated from it here in the United States. And of course, there's stuff that happens like 9-11 where we get a little bit of a wake-up call that guess what? You know, people don't want to preserve our way of life and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it gets, um, it's really challenging. I think there's a lot of challenges that veterans face when they um, come home and those are just a few. Um, and I, I want to talk about your journey and your, and your track. Mm-hmm. Um, but just going back to all these things that are happening in the world that many of us aren't aware of, what, what do you think needs to change? What do you think we need to be doing differently in order to better understand what's right. happening um, and these things that maybe aren't making the news but should be? Right. Well, I think first, I mean, it comes from the veteran side of things. Uh, I think as veterans, we need to have the courage to share these stories. Um, because for me, it was, you know, I feel it felt like I was protecting my family because I don't want, I don't want anyone to have to experience this. And I think a lot of veterans feel that way too, is they don't want people to have to experience the horrors of war. Um, and we kind of put that burden on our backs and try to, you know, move forward with our lives. But, in doing that, we're not sharing the experiences. We're not sharing our wisdom of the experiences that we faced. So we can't educate the general population about the, the realities of that. And in by doing that, then we can make better informed decisions about who we're putting in office and who puts us into war situations in the, in the first place. Right. So if, um, or making better decisions like that. Um, and that's one of the things I say. It's like, you know, ask your candidate um, about these kind of situations. Like, what would you do? Would you would you take the country into war and why? You know, what do you think the ramifications are of that? You know, question, hard questions like that that I don't think a lot of people are asking. We just kind of, you know, um, have, have this military-industrial complex that keeps churning and churning and churning. And we keep expanding military... Um, uh, forces across the country are across the world. And I think right now we're have a, a military presence of over 151 countries mm-hmm. in the, on the planet. And I think there's only what only 190 some. So it's like, like this is, um, the option to go to war is, you know, too easy. And there's a, there are people out there and this is kind of another tangent, but there are people out there that, um, want to reinstate the draft. And that they want to do that as a way to prevent going to war, because once everyone's involved in it, everyone's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, hey!" Like, it I don't want to go. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. Right. So now we have this whole this volunteer system, and you can you can look up the data of when we had a draft in place versus when we got rid of it. the The amount of deployments that happened spiked up, mm-hmm. right? And I always say they don't make bombs to sit on shelves, right? So you have companies, corporations out there that are in the war business that are providing arms and bombs and all these different things to different countries and, you know, perpetuating war across the planet. And that is destructive to the environment. It's destructive to human beings. It's not really a net positive except for the corporations that are making money off of the government contracts. Mm-hmm. So what I just got from what <laughs> what you said is there's so many great points. And I think educating ourselves through stories, the yeah. power of storytelling, um, to really shed light on important issues and then 
being curious, asking questions, right. holding leaders accountable, and also <clears throat> holding ourselves more accountable. Right. Like those things can can help us right. get closer. It, it takes, again, it takes work, it takes effort. Yes, yes. But it's so important because the cost of not doing so right. is. And then on the civilian side too, it's, it's asking the tough questions. I think people tiptoe around this stuff. And, um, you know, <laughs> if you ask the right question, a veteran will definitely let you know what they think. And it's, it's, it's asking it in, in a thoughtful way and be coming from a place of non-judgment. I think that's really important. And if you can convey a message in that way to a veteran, like, I don't know what that experience is, you know, what happened during your deployment? That's a really good question. And that's what we kind of talk about in the book is asking a question coming from a place of non-judgment because you want understanding about the facts of what it's like to go to war. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's also a really good point. Um, I, it's is it giving veteran veterans more of an opportunity to share their stories in a platform? Is it, do you think that is a step that will help create more change? I think so. I think I think um, <clears throat> the the problem that I see is that again, I think people have the outlets um, to do that. But I think it's getting better with you know stuff like this with podcasts and and ways that we can kind of talk about um, these ex- these experiences. So can you tell us about the veterans track in your own journey? Yeah. Um, so I really got to a point of where I was contemplating suicide um, and really thinking about ways to end my, end my own life. And uh, to date, uh, we've lost three, three men from our platoon after coming home. Uh, so it's something that's ever, ever present in my life is always kind of just waiting to hear uh, of another one. And um, this is really real in the in the veterans community is you know we're i'm 35 years old now and you know we're losing guys all over the place and and women all over the place because of their experience in combat because they don't uh feel connected um so i was in the same boat and i knew that if i didn't do something drastic to improve myself and to take action um i was going to excuse me i was going to uh end my own life so this was what I came up with, um, was to walk from Wisconsin to California to really, um, deal with these traumatic events in my life and specifically the death of my platoon sergeant and the death of uh, one of our squad leaders. Um, because it was something that I didn't even address or even think of. I got back from my deployment and, uh, all my peers were graduating college. So I was like, okay, I got to do that. I got to get my own apartment. I have to get a full-time job and I'm just going to shove everything aside and, just pretend like it didn't happen and try to live my life. Um, but that ends up, you know, blowing up in your face, uh, which it did for me multiple times. So I'd be okay for a few months and then crash and burn, destroy relationships. Uh, I was, I was drinking a lot, um, using other substances to self-medicate. So I, I could see the writing on the wall, you know, at that point. And it was, it was a downhill slide. So, um, I, reached out to one of my buddies who lived in California and uh, he was on our sniper team and I told him I was going to walk to come visit him. And he's like, all right. And I just asked if he had a uh, rucksack or a a backpack that I could borrow. And I told him I'm going to, I'm going to walk it back. I'll walk it back to you. And he's like, all right, sounds good. And uh, I told my uh, buddy Anthony about the situation. And he's like, I'm in the same boat. Um, At that time he had a two year old daughter and, and his wife and his, his goals were to, uh, become a better father and a better um, husband. Because Anthony was a, yeah. a vet as well. Yeah, two time. Yeah, two time wow. has two deployments. Um, 
So, you know, we both have similar experiences in that, you know, we didn't deploy to the same area, but we deployed during the same time. So generally, you know, we had similar experiences. So we uh, decide our, our goal is to walk 20 miles a day and uh, we weren't going to listen to music. We weren't going to use things to distract ourselves from our, from our thoughts and what was going on and really try to focus in on these traumatic experiences to try to make sense of, of what we experienced during war because, you're going 24 seven in a combat zone. There's no, um, time to process anything really. Cause you're on to the next mission. You're on to the next mission. I mean, we would work 72 hour. We'd have a 72 hour mission, come back from that mission, like collapse in our rooms, take off all our gear. And within five minutes, you get a knock on the door saying, Hey, we got to go back out. Wow. So it's just constant. There's no, it's just stuff happening to you. And the best thing that we could do was make sure that the guy to the left and right of us get home right? Alive. It's just survival, pure survival, right? Um, so we left from Milwaukee and um, ended up doing seven states uh, over five months. And through that process, met a lot of people, met a lot of veterans. Um, and for us, it was good because it, it helped us um, build trust in the um, civilian population too. Because, you know, when you're in a combat zone, you don't have the ability to trust a lot of people. And that kind of gets ingrained in you. Um, so coming back, you kind of feel that way, um, cause you have this, um, very unique experience that a lot of people don't. So trusting people outside of the veteran community is, is, is challenging. Um, so we, we had that kind of demolished, thankfully, um, by a lot of uh, great supporters, um, that ended up basically carrying us and supporting us the whole way. I mean, we had people feeding us and giving us a place to stay and then, um, you know, letting us uh, do laundry at their house. The little things, you know, that really helped us get to the next town. Um, so it was a, an amazing experience. And what do you think surprised you the most during that trek? What surprised me mo the most is how many people want to help and support veterans. They just don't have an outlet to do it. Um, so we, had, we gave uh, people an opportunity to do it, and they really stepped up. And I think this is um, true, not just for like veterans specifically, but I think a lot of people want to help and a lot of people, you know, want to do the right thing and, and be supportive, whatever they, wherever they can, however they can, but they need opportunities to do that. And I don't think a lot of them exist um, as far as, um, you know, volunteering and, and stuff like that. It's extremely important. I think people want to give and they want to help. Um, it's just funneling that um, into the right um, way. And we were able to do that, thankfully. And you mentioned that it was hard for you to get used to the idea of receiving help or mm -hmm. even asking for help. Right. Did that track help you overcome that? Yeah. I mean, it was one big ask for help. <laughs> you know, I think it was, you know, the grand, the grand scheme of things. Um, you know, we were, we were saying, Hey, we, we suffer from this. There's veterans that are suffering and we want to bring awareness to that. And people really stepped up. And what was the idea of walking and being in motion and as well as um, not listening to music, giving yourself that space? Was the combination of the physical and kind of the quiet space that you gave yourself what helped you um, to better process? Yeah, that was definitely a big part of it was the exercise, uh, the physical motion of it, because I think, um, you know, I was pretty stagnant at that point. And, um, just getting up and going through the motions of life and showing up to work. And, you know, I had a 
pretty good drinking habit at that point. So, you know, going home, then drinking, then sleeping, getting up and doing it all over again. But I think the uh, physical movement really helped us um, start processing a lot of the stuff. And as Anthony likes to point out too, um, when you're exhausted from walking 20 miles a day, you don't have the energy to actually suppress the stuff anymore. Mm. So they have no choice but to look at it and feel it and um, see what it really is because we, we spend so much energy repressing, mm. you know, a lot of this stuff on a daily basis. I'm not going to think about it. That takes energy to do. So <clears throat> people get really run down, you know, after a while. And that's when you have a breakdown or what people call a mental breakdown or uh, panic attacks or, you know, all that kind of stuff is, a ma- I think, a manifestation of not addressing, you know, past issues. Mm, so sometimes it takes an actual breakdown to have a breakthrough to get yeah, to the point where you right. can. Well, I think it's your body's natural way of saying, hey, address this. Mm. Like, hey, we got to look at this like, yeah. because it's it's not going anywhere. And the movement, you know, the physical action uh, of walking is one because it's it's slower. Right. And we're not rushing. We had so many people that are like, why don't you just bike? Or like, why why don't you take a motorcycle? That'd be faster. I'm like, that's not the point, right? That's completely missing the point. Okay. So it's so it's taking the time to be with yourself, and that's what I think walking does. And when you're not, um, you know, you don't have the earphones in and and listening to music or podcasts or you know whatever it is. There's no distractions there, so you're just with yourself, and there's nowhere to go. <laughs> and mm-hmm. like the only way you can get there is walking. So there, for five months. <laughs> yeah, for five that's months. a long time. Yes, yes. And there, there are many times where people would stop and like we tell them what they're doing and they'd be like, hey, get in, we'll give you a ride. And we'd have to uh, tell them no mm-hmm. um, because that's, you know, that, that would be totally against what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And actually there was that one point in the book where you, you hit this deadly snowstorm. In the yeah. Rockies. Yes. And there was no way you were going to be able to make it if you were walking. Yeah. And so it, you mentioned that it was a real turning point moment for you where you right. had to decide to ask for a ride. Yeah. Can you tell us about why that was such a turning point moment? Yeah. I mean, I think it really, you know, you look at asking for help um, versus the optics um, of it, right? So it's like, you know, at the end of the day, we, we came to the agreement. We're not, we're not trying to be tough guys, right? We're not trying to like, um, go through a snowstorm to prove a point or anything like that. Like we want to be alive mm-hmm. <laughs> at the end of the day. So, right. And it comes like, it comes to asking for help, which is really uncomfortable for us because we had to ask someone who was a veteran who had a lot of health issues and, uh, he was on a hundred percent disability and um, his wife was his caretaker and he had a young family and we had no one else to ask. And it was really challenging for us uh, to get past uh, that uncomfortable feeling of asking for help or asking someone for help, um, which is which is um, in our society, it's, it's kind of looked down on. It's like you can't you can't hack it right on your own when in reality we all need help. Like we can't do this on our own. And that's why we have communities in the first place. Um, and we have to understand that, that there's a lot of strength in asking for help. You know, there's a lot of strength in being vulnerable. And um, I think that's a, a, a good shift that we need to uh, trend towards. Yeah, I, I love that. And and you're right. No one can do, do it alone or right. get through life alone. And along the track, you met a lot of teachers. Um, a lot of teachers are very different from Native right. American healers to a meditation teacher. Um do you have advice to people on how to learn lessons and find teachers and people who may be very different from yourself, right. how to remain open? Yeah. Um, 
<clears throat> I think it's, it's putting yourself um, in the situations that make you uncomfortable, right? And and being which we don't want to do. Yeah, no. you want to avoid it, <laughs> avoid it like the plague, right? You're like, I don't know these people. I don't, you know, I want anything to do with them, right? You want to be in your little comfortable bubble, and and um, <clears throat> it's really uh, also takes a lot of understanding of yourself too. You know what's going on with me because if you're not able to look at the things that are going on with you and reflect on on how to get better or want to get better um it's hard to apply other people's lessons to what's going on you know with you and, and a good example of that was we met a um a pastor in iowa and he was in the marine corps and then he was a rancher and then he ended up becoming a pastor so he has a really unique background and we were just kind of amazed you know that he he had this path and he said he had a little piece of wisdom for us that says life demands a response and for us we're like okay like how am i responding to life like am i responding to life you know it's one of those things where um life happens regardless of your response so like your inaction is actually a response right so if you're just going to let life steamroll you that's your decision right or you can stand up and, you know, face these things head on. Like, what is your response to life, right? Because life is going to keep coming regardless of whatever your response is. So it's, it's finding the tools and the skills and the, and everything that you need to respond to what's happening. And, uh, we got a lot of the insight from this one, you know, bit of wisdom from, from someone who has experienced a lot as well. Um, so understanding that, you know, being interested in other people's, uh, experience and understanding that, People have experiences that can help you, but you have to be able to listen and um, listen to people is is really important. Mm, yeah, staying curious, act, asking questions, listening yeah. to people. There mm. was another line in the book that, that really struck me um, where you said, um, you said, if we look hard enough, we can find meaning inside the pain, transform trauma into power and make the suffering worth something. War isn't meaningless if it ends with you. And I thought this was so beautiful, the, the transform trauma into yeah. power. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's hard. Yeah. That's really hard. And that's what you did, the, the bravery that you took to actually um, step back and, and realize that, you know, you couldn't self-medicate anymore, that you were right. actually going to go within and also out into the world and process. What advice do you have to people on how to transform trauma into power? Yeah. Um, first first step, um, and this is something that one of the, the people that I met, his name was Father Thomas Keating, um, that I experienced was he said that first the first step is accepting that this thing happened in my life. Right. So often we have these traumatic experiences and we deny, we deny, you know, we deny. And to be able to say, yes, this did happen in my life. And now I need to do something about that. And that's taking responsibility. And when you take responsibility, that's actually taking power and taking control of what's going on. A lot of people are like, oh, I don't want responsibility. Like, uh. but like you have to, like, there's no choice. And when you take responsibility, you're actually taking ownership of it and you're taking control of this thing in your life because before that it's just running wild and it's uh, impacting your life and you're avoiding it right so we we uh mold our lives around the things we don't like and the things we want to avoid in these traumatic experiences so when you when you actually grab it and you say hey i'm going to address this right that's taking your power back 
And that's a huge step in, in starting the healing process. Mm, yeah. Um, and your healing process didn't end at the track. Mm. Um, it, yeah. it kept going afterwards. Can you talk a little bit about what happened after the track and, and how meditation really helped you? Yeah. <clears throat> One of the things that is interesting is I think we have this false notion that um, we become healed, right? And I think it's an ongoing process um, regardless. It, these things take take a lot of time. And the more you dive into them, the more you find out about yourself. And the more you find out about yourself, the more you can make sense of these experiences. But it's ongoing and ever go. You know, it just keeps going. And I think there's, like I said, there's this false notion of like, one day I'm going to be like, oh, I'm healed, right? Everything's better. Like, no, I mean, it, it, it changes the perspective and the trajectory of your life and you just keep going with that. And, um, you can change that into, into a positive thing. And that's what we're, we're starting to call post-traumatic growth. And something mm -hmm. we, we briefly spoke about is, is how do we turn these things into resiliency in our lives? Um, how do we become more resilient because of these things? But also, how do we use that in a positive way to help other people? So a lot of people have traumatic events in their lives, and they're very unique to them. But at the same time, a lot of people have similar experiences. So when we use these experiences to help other people, to share our experiences, right? Storytelling is a great way to do it. Um we connect with other people and we heal together. Every time I tell my story, I heal a little more. And that's the beautiful thing about this is like, you know, it's like the universe saying like, hey, look at this, like this can help you. And we're like, no, this hurts, right? No, this does not feel good, right? And that's where they're saying like the lesson lies in the pain. Um, because once you understand the pain and once you understand where it's coming from and you know that, okay, I have to sit with this and be with this, regardless of how much it hurts, um, then you can start looking at ways of how can I use this to help other people or how can I use this to benefit others? And that's where we're talking about post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's just one way that we can turn these traumatic experiences into positive, powerful uh, experiences in our lives. Yeah, you've been hearing a lot lately, um, your pain is your purpose. Yeah. And I think that's uh, such a, an important concept. And the whole idea that we are connected. So if we're healing ourselves, it's not just for ourselves, right. but we're also healing those around us, yes. which I wanted to leads me to ask you. Um, so you took a job as uh, in organizing meditation retreats for, for vets. Yeah. Um, and you said, you know, when you initially asked vets to participate, their answer was no. Right. Um, but when you reframe the question to say other vets there could really use your support, they said yes. Yeah. And, um, it, that was so, so interesting. Why do you think that is? Well, I think as veterans, we're really trained to, um, sacrifice ourselves, um, and not to ask for help because that would be selfish. And, you know, we're used to um, being trained to sacrifice for the greater good of everyone else but ourselves. Um, so that's in our training. And it's, it's a way that, um, you know, we're, we actually end up beating ourselves up um, and really not, you know, talking to our, you know, self-talk, all these different things. But when you reframe it 
when I was able to reframe it in, you're going to be of service to other people that need help, immediately they're like, yes, because that's what I do, right? That's why I'm a veteran. I'm here to serve other people, and I'm here to serve the veteran community. And um, and, and it's getting around the stigma of, of asking for help, right? And that's that's a hard thing to do for veterans because, you know, in, in my training, if you are seen as a weak link, you are going to be replaced. So it's, it's getting away from this um, asking for help is weakness thing again. Um, coming back to that and really understanding that asking for help, you're actually strengthening yourself. You're building understanding in yourself. And when you do that, you're able to uh, find strength um, to be able to help other people, right? So it's kind of the help yourself first, and then you can help others. Um, and I think that that is um, the way to go. Um, it, you know, some people say it's, it's selfish, but like if you're if you're trying to help people and you're running at 25%, you're not really helping you know, other people. And sometimes that's detrimental to the other person and yourself. Um, so really getting yourself, getting, you know, charging your batteries to, to a hundred percent where you have the capacity to help other people. And you can only do that when you build wisdom through the events, the traumatic events. And, mm. and that, that way you're coming and you're bringing something to the table to help other people. Mm. So it goes back to, to the strength in, in vulnerability. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to ask about bias and if there there was a, a pervasive bias about veterans that you could change, what would it be? That's a, a an amazing question. Um, I don't know. I don't know that I that I have a an answer. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's it's um, you know there's a lot of uh, uh, biases around veterans, whether it's be you know un- mentally unstable or. Um, dangerous, uh, these, these different pre, preconceived notions about um, what veterans are. Um, but I think it's, it's can it be addressed through uh, understanding the veteran experience? And again, coming back to being able to share um, these stories and experiences to help other other veterans and help uh, the civilian population understand, um, you know, if the, the, I could remove that bias of, of, you know, the dangerous veteran or the mentally unstable veteran. And um, I would say post-traumatic stress, moral injury, these are human reactions to um, very intense, uncommon human experiences. Um, so it's a natural reaction that happens in, would happen in the majority of the population if they're in that um, experience themselves. So it's just that it just happens that it's just a, such a small percentage of the population. We're only seeing it in people that, that experience it. Um, so that's, um, the direction I would head. Yeah. And I think through your storytelling, even that snippet of reframing a question for veterans to participate Mm -hmm. by helping others and immediately they jumped up. It's this storytelling and you sharing those stories that we don't talk about that side of it as much, or, you know, civilians don't see that side, the, the brotherhood or the sisterhood, um, or, you know, standing up for, for others. That's exactly what veterans are trained to do. Yeah. And it takes a special person to, to run towards gunfire yeah. uh, and, and danger, you know, um, same with, uh, police and, and firefighters and, um, you know, everyone who is, uh, you know, first responders, um, you know, it takes, it takes a, a special group of people to be able to do those types of jobs and to pre- protect yeah. all of us. Yeah. 
Um, and then the last question, um, I, I just wanted to address the, the meditation. Yeah. How is breathing so powerful? I know that healing is different for everybody yeah. and every, th- different things work for different people, but um, you, you really talked a lot about the power of meditation in the yeah. book. Can you share why that's so powerful and how it might help people heal from trauma? Yeah, the, the actual physical practice of meditation is really important because uh, for me, what it did was it gave me space from these traumatic events. Uh, before I started meditating, I would get swept up in the emotion of the traumatic event. So um, something would trigger me or I would be um, you know, reminded of my experience in Iraq, that would send me spinning sometimes for a week at a time where I would, uh, be in my room for 72 hours, not get engaging with anyone, um, because I would be in this, I would be in the past essentially, right? Taken back to the past experience takes you out of the present moment. So meditation, um, gives you the space from the emotion. Um, and specifically, uh, using, uh, using a, uh, breath-based meditation. So you can look up in yoga, they're called pranayamas, right? So they're really important because, uh, pranayama, the breath is linked to our emotions. Um, so you can always know when someone's like sad because they sigh, right? They go, oh, like, and then you're like, what's wrong immediately? So we know, you know, innately based on someone's breath that emotionally they're feeling a certain way. Anger too. Someone high, breathing high in their chest. Um, fast out of their nose, you know, they're like angry about something. Um, so when we can control the breath, we can actually control the emotion uh, that's going on with us. So when you can do um, deep breathing, or there's a lot of these different pranayamas that you can look up, we can actually change the emotion that we're experiencing in that moment. And that's why it's so powerful. Um, and then meditation gives us a way to integrate um, a lot of these different breathing techniques and um, is really in, is really vital, was vital in my own healing, um, to be able to give me space to actually be a witness to what was going on in my mind. And so often we think that our mind is us, right? The, the thoughts in our head that are going through our head are the things that, you know, we are, which is not the case, right? Because the mind is going to do what the mind's going to do. And when you meditate, you're able to kind of step back and observe, hey, like my head, I'm just having all these crazy thoughts going through my head. Um, and then understanding that that's not who I am as a person and understanding, um, the emotions that are going on with me. And it just gives you um, a heightened sense of uh, sensitivity to what is going on in the mind. Uh, that's really um, that I haven't been able to find anywhere else. And once I was able to uh, cultivate a meditation practice, um, you just see the, the benefits start piling up immediately um, and um, understand you become a lot calmer, uh, more patient, um, mental clarity, you know, better decision making. Um, all these things um, are really beneficial to to your life. Mm, and and so for someone just looking to start a meditation practice, who doesn't know where to start? What do you recommend? Where do you re- recommend them going? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, great apps out there, meditation apps that are out there, or even just finding a guided meditation on YouTube. The important part is finding something that resonates with you, finding a teacher that resonates with you. And that can be a little bit of a, a process, right? You know, you might find someone... You know, it doesn't, um, same thing with like asking for help, right? You need to find the person, you need to put the effort in to find someone that resonates with you that, that you connect with, right? So either starting with guided meditations, which is a really great way to start. It's how I started sitting for 10 minutes, 15 minutes at a time to start. Um, and my practice is only, you know, 20 minutes of meditation a day. So it's not like, 
we're asking, you know, sit for three hours and, you know, do chanting and all these different things. It's really, you know, you can get the benefits of it for just sitting for 20 minutes a day. Could five minutes be enough for people who even 20 minutes? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, that's a good, that's a good place to start. And that's how, that's how you, you train yourself, right? So this is a discipline and it's a practice and then we call it practice. There's no right. There's no wrong, right? You work, you work your way up. And sometimes just sitting there for five minutes can be very challenging for a lot of people in silence, right? Sitting there, eyes closed for five minutes, right? Have a timer. Uh, it's a good way to start, right? Because then you start observing what's going on in your body. And that's what this whole thing is about, is being self-aware and self-study and being, okay, you know, why, why can't I sit still for five minutes? Mm-hmm. You know, asking yourself these hard questions um, just helps you understand yourself a lot better. Yeah, and giving yourself that space and permission for that space that you probably wouldn't take exactly. in your everyday life. Exactly. So we're all moving so fast. Is is there anything else that you think is important to add that I didn't ask? Yeah, I mean, I think I just just leaving out just for the, you know, listeners in general, um, how important it is for to ask for help. Um, you know, if I didn't ask for help, I wouldn't be here today. And understanding, um, reframing it again, like we talked about as a strength. And, um, you know, you have to keep trying. You like, there's no, there's no end to this, right? You have to keep going. There's, um, so many different ways, uh, different modalities of help out there today that there's something for everyone, you know, and specifically my, my training is in the veteran population, right? So in the veteran population, there's peer support, there's uh, equine therapy, they're pairing veterans with horses and, and doing a lot of work in nature, uh, nature-based therapies. That's something that really helped me peer support, finding another person that has these similar experiences. So you can start talking to someone and sharing experiences to build understanding of what's going on in you. But if you're not putting yourself out there to try different things, um, you know, and I know a lot of veterans that would go to the VA and be like, this is not for me. And then they'd be done. Right. And then you just fall into the, into that trap and things continue to proceed as they did before. So if you're not making the changes in your life, nothing ends up changing. Mm -hmm. And where can people go to find out more about you? Uh, my website is the meditatingvet.com, uh, also on Instagram and, uh, Twitter under the meditating vet. Nice. Well, thank you so much, Tom. It's been amazing speaking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Bias. 